Father, thank you. Thank you for how loving you are, how merciful. That's what gives all of us hope, men and women, young and old, whether we're parents or not. It is grace that gives us hope and strength for today and tomorrow. Thank you. May your love, may your mercy, may your clarity and strength be shown fully as I open your word. Thank you for the privilege of doing so. Speak to us. Teach us, Lord Jesus, I ask in your name. Amen. I grew up outside the country, so I have been fascinated my entire life with cultural differences. You know you're experiencing culture shock or at least a culture difference anytime you're surprised or annoyed by other people doing things differently. Marriage is a great cross-cultural lab because men and women, I don't know if you've noticed, are pretty different. And it comes across in any culture, any cross-cultural relationship, and by definition, anytime you're talking to another human being, it's, it's just different. Cultures clash head on. One of those instances, which is sometimes humorous and often annoying, is a sensitivity to time, specifically what constitutes being on time. Where are my five minutes? You got to be five minutes early or you're already late, people. Anybody like that? Those of you who were married, did you marry someone like you? Chances are you didn't. And I got to see as a kid, I got to see both sensitivity to time and the regrettable effects of someone not adapting well to marriage. When I was just third grade, we lived in a, in a house that had some apartments behind it, really close. And another family there with, with grown kids lived there, and I got to see as a wide-eyed third grader how one of the local young kids, guy in his, in his probably 19, 20 years old, would be driving to this apartment all the time, and he was courting, he was dating, and on his way very formally, very seriously toward marriage with the girl that lived there with her parents, because every time he came to her door, he always had flowers. Guys, did you hear that? <laughs> Same thing happened in the first service. I said he had flowers, and all the women went, oh, it's not that hard. Just get some flowers, and I'm speaking primarily to myself, okay? It's not that difficult. My wife is saying, yes, listen to your own sermon, Bruce. So. <laughs> but he'd get flowers, and he'd go inside, and of course, be very polite. They'd ask him in. He'd be in there for about an hour. And eventually he'd come out without the flowers, but with her, open the car door, let her in. Are you in, baby? Close the door very gently. Don't want to hurt her ears slamming the door. Back out very slowly. Come back, of course, nice and time. Keep the parental curfew. It's all great. And I'm a third grader going, man, this is romance. You know, I'm, I'm only starting to get the idea that girls are kind of cool in third grade, but... This guy, this guy gets it. Well, then they got married. And they moved in with the in-laws in that same apartment. And I think within a month, I saw a change. He'd come stomping out of the house, get in the car, turn it on, turn up the radio, wait for about two minutes, start blaring on the horn, roll down the window, come on, woman, we're late. Like, wow, that's the same dude. <laughs> that had all the time in the world and the flowers and the kindness. 
And it was all a fight that I could see about time and whether we were going to be on time. As we return to the Gospel of Luke for a little while, we're going to find in Luke's Gospel a fight about exactly that. Please open your Bibles with me in Luke chapter 13. And you're going to see Jesus collide head on with the religious man about time and timing and when it's proper to do certain things. This comes right out of the text. Every time God's people gathered in the synagogue, that would have been on Saturday, they would have been opening what you and I call the Old Testament Saturday by Saturday, Jesus was always there. He never took a weekend off to do something else. He was in worship. Often he was invited to preach. As his reputation spread as someone who opened God's word with authority, Jesus was invited by the local rulers and the important men of whatever synagogue he happened to be in, what village he happened to be in that Saturday, he's teaching. And so we read in Luke chapter 13, verse 10, now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. I don't know if you could catch all that's said there in so few words. Jesus is going to make it abundantly clear what's happening as we keep reading. But for now, just stop right there. Jesus is actually teaching in the synagogue. I tried hard to figure out, but I can't be entirely sure if what happens next actually interrupts his teaching. It certainly sounds like it. It sounds like he's in that portion of the synagogue service where he's been given a scroll to read. He's reading. He's going to explain it now. And again, he's going to do it with authority. Anytime people heard Jesus teach, they always said, he doesn't teach like our so-called experts. He teaches differently. He teaches with authority. And the reason is simple. Jesus is reading and explaining the book written about him. He's reading his own father's word. He's reading virtually in every page a promise that was made about him. He's certainly reading almost on every page the problems that people have without him. And he's going to tell them, and I'll show you in a moment, when he goes to his hometown in Nazareth at the very beginning of his ministry, he's going to read Scripture and say, I'm the fulfillment of what I just read to you. And on this Sabbath, wherever he was, he's teaching, and in the midst of his teaching comes in a woman, and notice her condition. It says she has a disabling spirit, and Jesus will later explain what that means is, not that she has a bad attitude, but she actually is demonically oppressed. The spiritual world has collided visibly, practically with her life. The Bible says that not, not all illness is spiritually derived. You can see that clearly. Jesus both cast out demons and heals diseases, two different categories. But in this case, 
her body has been crippled by satanic, by demonic oppression, and it has gone on for a very long time. If you look in verse 11 again, it says there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years, and here's the problem, she was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. Can you imagine? She's crushed. She's shaped like the letter C. She's making her way through life, never being able to look people in the face. Always painfully hunched over, and in her culture, she's a two-time loser, so to speak. The misogynistic culture of her day will not even allow her word to be admitted into a court of law. That's one evidence that the resurrection of Jesus was real. He first appeared to women. Their word was unbelievable even to the disciples of Jesus. Why, does it, why is the story told that way? Because that's the way it happened. And because Jesus is going to dignify them and elevate them to the same standard that the men that he's saved have. They're all now in, his, in the family of God. They all have equal standing, equal value and worth in the sight of God. This woman not only has to bear with the, with the indignities of being a woman in first century Israel, but she's in pain. She's practically helpless. She cannot, I take from that, quick description that she's tried. She cannot stand up straight. She cannot look anybody in the eye. She doesn't remember very much what the world looks like except for the feet of other people and the dirt in the streets. And in the midst of all that, as he is teaching, apparently, perhaps he broke off in mid-sentence because verse 12 says, when Jesus saw her, he called her over. In other words, she comes to where he is. And whether he's up in front teaching still, wherever Jesus is, if he's teaching or he's done teaching, he's the center of attention, believe me. And if you've been to Israel or you've done a little bit of study, you know how small the synagogues are. Some of the synagogues in the ancient world would have been much, much smaller than this room, believe me. Everybody saw what was happening. And Jesus calls her over and says to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her. And immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. Wow. Just like that, she straightens up. I wonder what it felt like. I wonder what it would be to be crippled and for spiritual reasons for nearly two decades and then have this powerful stranger with the authoritative teaching call you over, say a simple sentence over you, put his hands on your shoulders, and you feel strength returning. And something you haven't felt since you were a young woman. Strength returns. You look him up in the eye. You probably scream for joy and everybody realizes what's happening and no wonder the next verse says, he laid his hands on her. Immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. Probably not a lot of propriety there. Not another stuffy Sabbath service. She starts shouting, perhaps with the words of Scripture that she's only been able to hear and she hasn't been able to see even the face of the teacher for 18 long years. She calls back, probably with the words of David, 
Maybe with the prayer of one of the prophets to praise God for what he has done through this man. But as so often when Jesus works, there's trouble. Verse 14. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Can you believe it? What's going on here? Well, he's just being a good, traditional, observant Jew in his culture. You see, the law of Moses was really clear, and it doesn't actually go into much detail. It just gives something that was required for Israel and would be wise for us to this day. You have six days to work. On the seventh day, you set that aside for God. You rest your body, and you worship your God. That's the rhythm of life. Six days for work, one day for rest and worship. But the people, the religious crowd, guys like this guy... On those simple, clear commandments, they've stacked all kinds of interpretations and practical rules and admonitions. They had literally dozens of rules explaining what this meant. And in some communities, you could only walk a few thousand feet, and you had to count your steps. And depending on what you did and when you did it and what your role in life was for you, something might be work, but it might not be work for somebody else. And they had built up all this stuff. And this man stands with all of this legalism, and I want you to see how passive-aggressive he is. Who is he scolding here? Who's he addressing? He's not talking to Jesus. Notice who he's talking to. Who does he talk to? He said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come, you people. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath days. Do you think he's kind of missing the point? And he's saying more than he knows. What he is saying is very passive-aggressive. He's saying it's this man's job. His work is healing. But he has no respect for God. He does work on God's day. We all know that shouldn't be done since he's so irreverent. It's up to you, crowd, to help him out. Don't come to the synagogue. Don't come to him on the Sabbath. Don't put him to work on the Sabbath because he'll violate the Sabbath by working and healing you. Wonder which, I wonder whose side the crowd is beginning to feel is the better side. See, this has been a long time coming in Luke's gospel. When Luke began to tell us the story of Jesus, he began to tell the, the genealogy of Jesus in the most ordinary way. In Luke chapter 3, he wrote, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. And he counts backward. Listen to the specifics. He was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. You see, because Jesus doesn't have truly an earthly father, he has a heavenly father and an earthly guardian. Sometimes the scripture will call Joseph his father, but Luke wants to be specific. Joseph, the carpenter, he's not really Jesus' father. And he makes that clear by counting backward from Joseph, and by the time the genealogy is over, it sounds like this. Counting backward, the son of Enos the son of Seth, 
the son, of Ad, the son of Adam, the son of God. Luke is telling you from the very beginning of Jesus' life, the one in the Sabbath that day, the one that dared in the religious crowd's opinion to violate the Sabbath, he didn't, but that's what they thought. He's doing what no one else does. He has power in his hands that belongs to no one else because he is like no one else. He is entirely different. He is the very son of God. That's why when he was only 12, his parents, as good observant Jews, went to keep one of the days. And they took him to Jerusalem. And imagine the embarrassment. You may remember the story. It's actually kind of fascinating and funny. Imagine the embarrassment of losing the son of God at the temple. And they get a few days away, and the conversation isn't narrated, but it probably sounded like this. Hey, where's, where's Yeshua? Well, I thought he was with you. Well, what do you mean he thought he was, you thought he was with me? You always take him on these trips. No, no, I gave him to you. And there's a big, probably, marital argument, and they go racing back. Do you remember where they find him? In the temple. Asking and answering amazing people with the insight that he has already at the age of 12. And he looks at his parents in genuine bewilderment and says, why are you surprised? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Another legitimate translation, older Bibles. Didn't you know I had to be about my father's business? I'm listening to my father. And Luke goes on, he goes home and submits to his parents. He's going to be obedient to God in every way, including doing what you never did very well, which is obey your parents. Jesus will be perfect even in that detail. Even as a child, he's going to obey his parents. And if you're still a child under authority in your home, so should you as part of being a good Christian. But Jesus from the earliest of ages is listening to his father and doing what he wants. So when he begins his ministry, he goes to another synagogue, this time in his hometown of Nazareth. And in Luke chapter 4, we read this. This is the case that Luke has been building to this point. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Here's what this woman would discover. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set liberty at those who were oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's his agenda. He announces it in the beginning of his ministry and every day of his life. He is always moving forward in obedience to his father, doing what the father wants, whether he's in the countryside or a major city, whether he's out in public or the marketplace or the byways or the highways of Israel or whether he's in the synagogue. He is always and only doing what his father sent him to do. And the leader of the synagogue... Just because of time, just because of timing, he can't get his mind around it. And he says, there six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Don't put this man to work. See, he said more than he knew. This man's work is healing. 
This man is doing what doctors can't do. This man's work is doing what only God can do, but don't put him to work. He doesn't respect our traditions. How do you think Jesus is going to take it? Did you read ahead? Please don't read ahead. <laughs> Let's find out together instead. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites. Whew. See, there's this caricature of Jesus that he's this mild-mannered, meek man. My southern grandmother would say he wouldn't have butter melt in his mouth. He just kind of stays out of people's way. and He's just kind of apologetic. No, 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 no. This is God in the flesh. This is the Son of God, the strongest, most courageous, most faithful man anyone will ever meet. He knows that they don't. He's on his way to the cross already. Nothing will deter him. But for a little while longer, he's going to bring the kingdom to earth as the king of everything that's ever been made. And he's going to rule over everything, including disease, including the absence of wine at a wedding, including demonic, satanic oppression. And he's going to make it clear what's happening and why his timing is perfect and godly. The Lord answered him, you hypocrites. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And they did. See, their traditions allowed for that. If you just wanted to go for a walk, some tradition said you can only go so many thousands of feet. But everybody knew we have donkeys, we have oxen, this is a desert climate. You don't want your animals to suffer, that's your livelihood. So don't work. But it's okay to take care of the animals. And Jesus said, you're hypocrites. You have more concern for your animals at home than you do for this woman in your midst that you've all been looking down on. Verse 16, ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? What is Jesus announcing to her? He's telling her that she, because of him, is free. That he has come to conquer everything that sin has ruined. This is why another one of his disciples, John, wrote in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, listen to this. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. It doesn't get a lot of play, but it's in the Bible. Why did Jesus appear on earth? to do everything that God does, including destroy the works of the devil. And on this day, in the midst of the Sabbath, he apparently is willing even to interrupt his own teaching to announce freedom to a woman who has put herself down, who has been scorned likely by the community. Because in those days, the legalistic understanding was, if you're chronically sick, if someone dies in your family in an untimely and early way, there must be sin in your life, and that's why God is doing this to you. You deserve it. Jesus says, no, she too is a daughter of Abraham, and she is being loosed because it was Satan who bound her for 18 years, and this day she is loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day. He's announcing freedom and announcing to her her full acceptance into God's family. Not because she's been good enough, but because God himself is that good. And I want you to see how the people took it. Last verse in the story. 
As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced in all the glorious things that were done by him. What's this story about? It's a story about conflict over time. And it offers a valuable lesson. And now let me bring it into our world and I'll be done. There are always, friends, there are always good reasons to put off doing what God wants. See this synagogue ruler? He heard teaching from the Word of God, and like he'd ever heard, he saw the very miracles of God done in his very presence, and his only sinful reaction was, not now. It's the Sabbath. What better time for God to give freedom and announce acceptance and forgiveness to a woman who's been bound by Satan for 18 years? Why not on the Sabbath? What better day than the Sabbath? But he can't see it because in his own mind, he's fixed on time. He's built up traditions and rules and ideas in his own mind that keep him from seeing what God is doing and what God wants. Not Jesus. His whole life as the eternal Son of God, his whole life on earth, he was continually obedient to the Father on your behalf. But you and I, we have to find ourselves in this story. You may find that you stand more with the synagogue ruler than you stand with Jesus sometimes. If I can be very candid, very transparent, my greatest regret as a Christian, as a father, as a pastor, is procrastination. I really know what I should be doing. I read my Bible. I have good friends. I know godly men who encourage me. It's actually pretty clear what I should be doing. It's the timing I struggle with. Anybody else with me on this? I'll do it better tomorrow. Not now. It's such a busy time, such a busy season. When we have, and I've discovered this, the line keeps moving of when I'll do it. Our kids are small. It's a very intense time. We're barely sleeping. Well, now our kids are in school. You know how troubling that is. Play dates and school and homework and unreasonable teachers and all kinds of fight with the PTA and all the things you have to do as a parent. Now my parents, now my kids are junior hires. Oh, junior hires, you know, they're, they're, just, they're just entirely different. God's taking them through a wonderful season of development. They're just so different. I've got to put all my attention. Then they're in high school. And now I'm parenting adults, and that has its own trouble. And maybe when I'm retired and people are continually moving the line of timing of when they will do what they already know God wants. Pastor DJ has taught me a very, a very valuable word that I'd like to introduce into the lexicon of our church. It's Christianese, but it's very helpful. That word is this, procrastination. Did you get it? Christians don't procrastinate, we procrastinate. And we say to people, after hearing a pretty good, clear description of what we should be doing, what God might want us to do, we say what? I'll pray about it. And then you don't even do that. You just become a straight-out liar. You don't even pray about it. You've just learned, if I say I'll pray about it, they leave me alone. And if you're super spiritual, you say, you know, we're just going to put that in front of the Lord. We're just going to rest and wait before Him in this season. 
We're going to lean into this time and blah, 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 blah. I'm not saying don't pray. I'm saying don't use prayer as an excuse to delay your obedience. Jesus never does, and his disciples shouldn't either. He's willing to stop a synagogue service where he's leading and teaching cold to see the woman that everybody else has learned not to see to do what God wants in her life right then. And this theme of moving forward and not waiting, not procrastinating, but giving God immediate obedience is all the way through the Bible. Let me show you one of my very favorite instances. Look back with me in Exodus, please. Exodus, please, chapter 14. The setting is one of the most famous scenes in Scripture. God has sent the people deliberately to the Red Sea. Pharaoh is coming with his world-crushing army right behind them. He's come to his senses and said, why did we let our, sleeves, our slaves leave? Let's come, let's go out and bring them back. And the people are terrified. Verse 11, they says to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in this wilderness? What have you done bringing us out of Egypt? And the roar and the thunder of the Egyptian chariots is coming ever closer. And in verse 13, Moses gives them one of the greatest speeches in the Old Testament. Verses 13 and especially verse 14 is what I call a t-shirt verse. It's the kind of Bible verse that people put on t-shirts and Instagram. Really gets people pumped up. Look. Moses said to the people, Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. Here's the t-shirt verse. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. You ever claimed that one? Great verse. I wonder if you've ever noticed what God says next. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Did you catch that? Moses is delivering this sermon and Jesus and, and Mo, uh, Moses is delivering this sermon and God says to Moses, why are you talking? Why are you talking to me? It's not time to preach or pray. What is Moses supposed to be doing? Telling the people to go forward. And they do, and it's all through the Bible. Look in Ephesians chapter 5. Look in verse 15. Ephesians 5, verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk. In other words, how you live day to day. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. In the very next chapter, in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul is going to go into detail and tell them the struggle that you're experiencing in your daily life is not physical. You're not having a battle with flesh and blood. Your struggle isn't with people. It's with unseen demonic forces and you need to put on the whole armor of God. In Ephesians 5, verse 15, he gives them a quicker description of what that means in daily life. Because there is spiritual warfare raging around you, you need to be careful how you live. 
You need to be wise rather than unwise. And look, you need to make the best use of the time because the days you live in are evil. I'll ask you, has anything changed? Are there spiritual dangers in us and around us? Everywhere. Verse 17, therefore do not be foolish, but understand what? What the will of the Lord is. The Lord knows what he wants you to do. The question is whether you will respond to his word and do it now. Jesus said in John chapter 9, speaking to his disciples before another extraordinary miracle. Listen. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Since it's Father's Day. Can I just talk to the men for a second? You know what to do. If you have a wife, you have your orders. You are to love your wife the way the Lord loved his church and gave himself for her. Colossians, he gets even more specific. He says, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. I hate it when the Bible gets that specific. So if I can just put it all under the big heading of love, I can say, I'm speaking to her in love, not if you're harsh. You can't be harsh. If you have children, you're told what to do. Bring your children up in the training, the admonition, the nurture, the discipline of the Lord. If you have neither of those things, men or women, you've already told what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and the person beside you the way you love yourself. These are all clear things that God wants. What gets in the way? Timing. My greatest regret. Not raw disobedience. There's been that too. But more often, delayed obedience. Procrastination to say to the Lord, to myself, to my wife, to my children, not by my words sometimes, but by, uh, by my actions. Yes, I see this too, but not now. Please, I'm so tired. If I can just be very personal, I pastored another bunch of people today. A little tired to pastor you. Be a good dad, be a good husband to you. I'm not saying that I won't. I'm just saying today I'm, I'm just, I'm all out. And the days like that roll by and they become habit. And if you're not very careful, you'll miss the whole point and purpose that God gave you your life You'll miss the reason that Jesus saved you. You'll miss the reason that Jesus made you his disciple because there will always be good reasons to put off doing what God wants. And what Luke 13 tells me in this story is simply this. There will always be good reasons to put off doing what God wants, but the time to, the right time to do what God wants is right now. Not tomorrow. Now. In two categories, there are people here perhaps who have never trusted Jesus as Savior. You've heard the gospel, you've been coming to church or churches, but you really haven't trusted Jesus with your whole heart. You've more trusted yourself. The Bible says over and over again, today is the day of salvation. If you hear his voice, respond today. Why today? Because when you keep telling God no, you get used to it. It's not that he keeps necessarily quits speaking to you. It's that you become so accustomed to saying no and so accustomed to saying what's even more dangerous, not no, but later, 
that you always think you have more time, listen to Jesus again. Night is coming when no one can work. We must do the works of the one who sent me because the night is coming when no one can work. Soon he'll hand off the baton. He will die on the cross, be crucified for sins, take his life back in the resurrection so that you can have eternal life and return to the glory from which he came and send the Holy Spirit to give you new life. And what is true, what was true then is true now. The night is coming when no one can work, whether it's the Lord's return for you or your own death. The day is coming when the work of God on earth through your life will be done. So what should you do? You should do as much as you can and as much as you know right now because you're not promised tomorrow. Let's pray. I'll speak to Christians first. Have you been putting God off? Dads? Have you been too embarrassed to lead, to teach, to counsel, to listen, to father as you should? Have you been saying later, 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 so busy, so tired, so pressured right now? Moms, same question. Young people, don't put God off. Don't put it under procrastination. You'll get used to it. You'll never do what he asks. So if you know that you've been procrastinating, you've been putting God off and saying later, you probably haven't been like the synagogue guy. You've probably been a lot more spiritual than he. But you've been saying later. Could I just invite you to talk to your Savior about it and move your later? Instead of saying later, start saying now. And maybe you're one of those, and you matter most in this room, if so. You haven't trusted Jesus as your Savior, not yet. You've been thinking about it. You admire Him. You want to know more about Him, but you simply haven't done it. Can I invite you into the family of God in the name of Jesus Christ right now? Would you please call out to Him for mercy? Tell Him you're sorry. Ask Him to forgive you. If you do, just call out to him. Tell him you're sorry for your sin. You're sorry you trusted yourself or religion or whatever else that's been keeping you away from him. But you're sorry. You're turning around. You're giving yourself to him. You're making him savior and boss. Take the card in your bulletin and please let us know that you did that today. There won't be a more important moment, more important decision in your whole life than trusting Christ as savior. There won't be. This is your day. Praise the Lord. Heaven will rejoice with you. You can be saved. You can hear from Jesus that you too are in the family of God. You too have been freed and forgiven. Father, do what you want. Do as you please. I pray that not a single person here would tell you that they will do it later. And this offering, Lord, this also is part of obeying you. You've told us to do this, and this is one of the easiest things to put off to say later when things are a little easier. Thank you, Lord, for the many who have learned to trust you and grow into faith by tithing and giving generously. Bless those who have not yet learned to do that. Give them courage. Give them trust in you. 
Bless those, Lord, who would love to give but cannot because they have no income. Provide for them. Show them your mercy. And Lord, receive this offering, our prayers of confession, and hear our whole church telling you that we'll do it now. We'll do it today. In the name of Jesus, amen.